And away we go. And away we go. Hi, everyone. It is the 15th of February, 2024. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 191 of my live chat. How are you doing? Nice to see you. Welcome aboard. Glad you're here on the docket today. I mean, what are we, two days away now? 48 hours away, basically, from UFC 298. Just a phenomenal main card in every kind of way. A couple of gems on the prelim card, but really that main card is is where it's all at. Um, we'll talk about that. There's Conor McGregor news, which is totally baffling, I think, is the best way I would put that. UFC 300 is sort of related to that, and a whole lot more. Why do we take the banner off? Dingleberries, put the banner on. There we go. I'll put it off here in just a second. Um... So, if you're here now, thank you so much. Thumbs up on the video. I uh, appreciate that. Subscribe. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. If you do want to contribute, you can support the channel. Uh, and you can, of course, ask questions free during the live chat. I think I'm going to stream my reaction to the main event. I think I'm going to be able to do that. I cannot do the post-fight show on this channel. I still have to do the post-fight show uh, on the MK channel. So, if you want the UFC 298 post-fight show... Unfortunately, I can't bring you that one yet. I am. We'll see how that goes for the future. But for for this particular event, uh, it will be on the MK channel. So YouTube.com/slash Morning Combat for the UFC 298 post-fight show. But I'm going to try and get you some extra goodies in there, one way or the other, either pre-fight or post-fight. I'm going to get some extra member goodies in there. And of course, the way this chat works is we'll go for about an hour on the free questions on the thread you guys filled up, and then we'll get to some of the paid stuff at the end. Should you have a donation, but if you just want the free stuff, I appreciate that just the same. All right, all right. With that, I'll take this off, and then uh, let's get this going, shall we? Let's get this party started. All right. How are we doing? How are we doing? Boy, they make it hard to uh they make it hard to cancel stuff these days. Gym memberships, subscription services. Do I have something on my fucking mouth. Something. They make it hard, don't they? I had to go with some deal with some customer service issues today. You don't care about any of that shit. So we'll get this show started. Uh again, thank you for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. All right. With that in mind, let's fire this bad boy up. And then let's do it this way. All right. First question's up is, how did Randy Couture come back so dominantly against Sylvia after being knocked out twice by Liddell? Well, <clears throat> the big story at the time, I mean, I was very surprised when Couture won that fight. I, I, not Well, by the fifth round, I wasn't really surprised, but not a lot of people I expected him to do well. There was there was a lot of controversy about that fight when it was announced. It was like Katora was retired. Yeah, he used to be a heavyweight. And yeah, he was a very good championship level heavyweight, but he hasn't fought in heavyweight in some time. To your point, he had been knocked out by Chuck Liddell in his last contest. He had hung up the gloves. He looked a little bit older. I forget how old he was at that time, but even then he was old by athlete standards. And then he came back and then uh just, you know, gave old Tim Sylvia the business. I mean, part of it was that, and this this I, I remember quite clearly. Um, he was going through a divorce when he had lost to Couture, I believe the last of those times. And he had even said in the run-up to that fight, when the Sylvia fight was being, uh, you know, uh, promoted, that he had finally felt like himself for the first time in quite some time. I, I can very much believe that. I can believe that, um, his life was disrupted. His training wasn't disrupted. His training was disrupted. Excuse me. His life was in disarray potentially his finances were messed up i mean there's just a lot of ways in which that can really derail you the other part is that 
Um, Tim Sylvia, I think, took him lightly. Tim Sylvia didn't really use his size. And then, honestly, his size wasn't the right kind of size. I mean, he was tall. He was lanky. He had a long jab. But the speed of Couture, that inside leg kick and then overhand that he came with, it was just a nightmare for Tim. And then the issues were Couture just kind of keeping it either all the way out or all the way in. And once he had him all the way in, the takedowns, controlling from the back, Tim Sylvia just really had no answer for someone who was that quick and could get in and out and then was still strong enough. Then you remember he followed that up with the Gabriel Gonzaga fight. And do go back and look at the Gonzaga fight. Look at how high he would hoist Gonzaga in the air to return him to the mat. Couture, I don't know if that's exactly prime Couture, but that version of Couture was strong as shit. Super, super strong. Obviously, very technical wrestler as well, right? Being an Olympic alternate. I mean, the guy, the guy could put it together. I just don't think these... There were, there, there were naturally much bigger guys at heavyweight. And Gonzaga was a decent athlete. I do believe that. He actually had a very good career in um, sport jiu-jitsu. But the truth of the matter is they were not athletes like Couture. Couture found a way to use comparable strength, I would argue, but much better speed, much better tactics, really understanding what, what those guys were up against. And uh, he, had a, he had a brilliant game plan. Also... I remember the camp for the Couture fight versus Sylvia, and he brought in every heavyweight of every kind of remotely similar size to Tim Sylvia, whether it was a height issue, whether it was a reach issue, size issue. I mean, he was he was out there, and, and I remember because you know you every fight you always hear that the the guys telling you who trained with the the person in question. I was like, oh man, this guy looks amazing. Oh man, this guy looks amazing. But I remember who was it? Was it? Um, was a Hawaiian guy that he had in his stable. Um, I forget who it was, but I remember him saying, he's like, dude, he's throwing us all around. He's throwing us all around. And I was like, man, come on now. What are y'all talking about? And then he goes in there, you know, it's just out there just manhandling Tim Sylvia. Yeah, it was big bank, take little bank. 84s in candy paint, buddy. Let me tell you. All right. Uh, if Holloway and Oliveira fought today in a 155 rematch, who would you favor? Ooh. Jesus, that's a good question. Um, probably Oliveira, because this version of Oliveira is much better. Obviously, if it was a five-round fight, you would like Max's chances a little bit better. Max uh, has been submitted, but it has been quite some time since then. So his takedown defense is good. His jab is very good. Obviously, his work rate is very high. In a five-round fight, I think it could be a little bit closer. But in a three-round fight, definitely Oliveira. Probably Oliveira either way. But in a five-round fight, I I would wonder about that a little bit. I, again, there's a certain thing where people are like picking on Max because I guess he doesn't have the kind of physicality that really stands out. But he has this accumulative physicality. I mean, Jose Aldo couldn't stand up under it. Granted, he's a 145-pound fighter, but you know what I'm saying. Two times in a row. Two times in a row he got polished off. Um, and, you know, Aldo had tough fights after that against some big punchers and was able to, like, beat many of them, you know. So Max has a certain kind of deceptive ability that I think sometimes goes unaccounted for. But to that point, um, the version that Oliveira has become is unless he's fallen off a cliff more recently, but based on what we've seen him since the, well, I guess the Darius fights, the last one we've seen, I'd probably go with, with Oliveira. I just think there's a lot of the things that plagued him in the first fight just don't really exist this time. Um, yeah. 
on behalf of all the donks, I'd like to say we miss you in BC. Yeah, I've been talking to B. I talked to BC today. I talked to BC today. Oh, I talked to BC every day, to be perfectly honest with you. Yes, we appreciate that. We miss you guys as well. Um, announcements to come. Stay tuned. But thank you for the support. Thank you for the kind words. And we hope to um, honor everyone's patience with something good on the other end. So stay tuned. Dana has to offer fighters multiple fights per year. I mean, that's technically true. That doesn't always happen the way it's supposed to, but okay. So how does that apply to McGregor Chandler? Is McGregor being offered other fights and turning them down? Can this be at any weight class? A bit confused how that whole situation works. So yes and no. Yes and no. First of all, they have to be medically cleared before they can be offered a fight. Like, So if you have torn your ACL... They can't go to you and say, hey, we offered you a fight. You turned it down. You know, we're going to add a tolling provision to your contract. It doesn't work that way. Or if you have been suspended by an athletic commission, they can't do it. There's been just a series of circumstances where that's not in play. But let's say it gets to a point where a full year passes and they only offered you two fights and they contractually have to offer you um, three or whatever. Um, they, they can just pay the difference. They can pay the difference if that really comes down to it. But there, you have to understand something. There's all kinds of ways in which they can minimize or mitigate how much they are owed on the other end for something like that. There's all kinds of ways in which not only can they extend the life of a contract, but they can define the terms of the space in between fights in a way that might benefit them depending on um, the, the, the requisite circumstances. And so I don't know exactly what they're doing with Connor. None of us really know. But there are ways around it, or they can just pay um, a baseline fee for it, and they can get out of that. So it's not that they have to offer it, or the contract is like null and void. There are ways in which they can mitigate how many they have to offer, but in the event that they do have to pay something in the end or offer something, and then the contractual term uh, of that year expires, they can just pay. Uh, uh, I, I think I'm not sure how it's defined the pay for that. If it's just the show money or the win, or actually it's the, remember, remember, we use show and win. The contracts use win and our purse and bonus. That's how they define it, your purse and your bonus. I don't know if it would be just purse or purse and bonus. I think it would just be purse that, that you'd get paid for that. Um, yeah. Good question. I haven't been around MMA as long as you have, but do you think it's moving in the theatrical direction of pro wrestling? If so, and it continues, do you think more introverted or reserved fighters will suffer? Folks, so there's a yes and a no to this question. Let me get to the no first. This is a question that we have been asking for much longer than 10 years in the sport. This is something we've been asking for a very long time. And in fact, something I was a little bit resistant to, probably more than I should have been, again, 10, 15 years ago, where people would naturally point out the similarities between UFC and pro wrestling, UFC and WWE, whatever, MMA and pro wrestling. And not just the business model, which is obviously very, very similar, but there's an audience similarity as well. I don't know how old this research is. I want to say circa 2009 or 10. But there were some, uh, there was some analysis done of boxing, MMA, and pro wrestling audiences. The greatest amount of overlap was were between MMA and pro wrestling audiences, but there were meaningful differences there as well. The biggest one that I remember were, and again, this was a while ago, so the fan base has changed. I don't know what it would be today. 
Again, this is going to be circa 2010. So this is definitely, this is this was like post-UFC 100. This was post-Ultimate Fighter boom. At that time, according to that study, Bloody Elbow did a lot of coverage of it at the time. I remember we had a writer named Michael Rome. He ended up becoming an attorney. He dug his, um, he sank his teeth into that story. The biggest difference at that time, and it wasn't a huge difference, but such that there was one, was that the pro wrestling audience at that time skewed a little bit more blue collar. The MMA audience, and again, this, these were ones that were defined as like people who had purchased pay-per-views in the past year, who maybe had attended an event, who self-identified as a UFC fan. They had a little bit more of a um, post-secondary education, so they had a few more college degrees to go around, and they were a little bit more economically well-off. Not a huge amount, but there was something of a bit of a, dif uh, a gap. There was a difference there. I don't know what it would show today. They did not measure, to my knowledge or to my memory, they did not measure any like politically partisan differences. If one skews one way, one skews another. I don't know. Um, and again, some of the some of that research may be outdated. I bring this all up to say, again, the most amount of overlap existed between MMA and boxing audiences are very very different. There is some overlap, perhaps more than there ever has been. Obviously, there's, the the worlds have bled into each other. But I mean, again, I'm going to say it before, like I've been to a million MMA events. I've been to, I won't know if I say a million, but I've been to, you know, a gazillion, whatever it is. I've been to many, many boxing events. I have been to several uh, boxing events that there were, the crowd was 90% plus black. I've literally never seen that at an MMA event. I've been to boxing events where the crowd was 70, 80% Hispanic. I've never seen that in an MMA event. Now, obviously, if they go to Chile, if they go to Mexico, then of course it's going to be that way. I'm just pointing out MMA tends to sort itself as predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly white. Boxing tends to sort itself as black and Latino, not exclusively, but predominantly. Just on that alone, it creates a pretty big difference. Um, but there is clear connectivity between uh, UFC and uh, WWE. Obviously, now they're owned by the same entity and TKO. To, to answer the question, um, one thing that study found as well was that a lot of MMA fans had identified as previously being WWE fans, but had kind of, to their description, and again, I'm not here to make any judgments about what anyone likes, but according to that study, people who had identified as MMA fans had kind of felt like they had watched pro wrestling for a time and then kind of graduated out of it into MMA. Again, everyone's going to have a different path and a different view of things. Um, but there were some genuine concerns at the time, especially remember that post-2009 meant post-UFC 100, Brock Lesnar was in full swing at that point. And so there was a lot of folks, not that he was cooking up weird storylines, but that were bringing in that audience. Uh, when they announced Brock Lesnar, they had this commercial. And this was back when UFC commercials had a narrator. Like, you ever heard that, like, that deep voice movie guy? Like, in a world where Tommy goes to school. That kind of thing. UFC ads used to do that. UFC, not, not maybe the exact same guy, but the same kind of thing. And I remember vividly, they had this like camera cut. They were like, from the ring to the octagon. And it was Brock Lesnar in, they may have like done a photo shoot, but like some kind of generic professional wrestling setup, you know, with like ring, you know, he was in a, he was in a wrestling ring behind him. And then the camera, camera flashes and all of a sudden he's got gloves on and, you know, he's got MMA attire. Let's just say that. And I remember a lot of folks being like super disturbed by that at the time. It was a point of controversy. Um, 
this is a thing that's been going on for a long time. So to answer the question when I said yes and no, part of it is no. Like I've heard this repeated quite a bit and it's just not a new conversation at all. It doesn't mean that there's nothing to it, but I think broad swaths of it are overplayed. However, the part that I would say yes to is like, for example, with like this Henry Cejudo prank, I don't understand this. I know we talked about it with Dom yesterday. A, a prank is supposed to be funny. Like what was, what was funny about that? I don't, he's just like, Hey, uh, you're fired. And everyone's like, what the fuck is this? And he's like, ah, oh, gotcha. It's like, I don't think you got us. I don't think that's the way this works. I mean, you, you know, like, yes, we believed the information that you were to some extent. Anyway, some of us did. I, I certainly, I didn't know what to make of it. I was like, uh, oh, it was a little weird, but you know, I mean, there, there's no joke there, but like to the extent that people will put anything on camera, including like knowingly false things and like people will create storylines or these like alternative identities in the way that Colby is like this extra kind of thing where in real life, he's really not that guy. You do get some of that perhaps more than you did before. There may have been a little bit of creep relative to how it was say circa 2010. I don't think that's unfair. There is something to be said for that. But I do think that like the general reality is somebody like me never came to MMA from pro wrestling. That wasn't that wasn't my trajectory exactly. Um, you know, I, everybody watched pro wrestling as a kid. Uh, you know, so in that sense, I guess there is something to be said for it. But that's not my path. The way I got interested in MMA was I've told the story before. I had a friend who was a martial arts instructor. Parents were divorced. Caught up to it in 1994, and then I really got into it through actually the practice of martial arts itself. And then that was my entry point. And there's a lot of people that didn't do that. They just kind of watched pro wrestling and then moved into MMA a little bit later or kept up with both or something. But um, there is natural uh, harmony between the brands. There's natural harmony between the fan bases. There are some differences as well. Uh, and there is a certain amount of growth to sensationalize everything in a way that there hasn't been maybe 14 or so years ago. But it's somewhat, somewhat natural and somewhat of an overstated complaint. There you go. Luke, would you rather see Usman return to 170 to face Shavkat or another up-and-comer or stay at 185 to and fight a top-ranked middleweight? I mean, I got to tell you, he looked pretty good at middleweight to me. Just one opponent, just one fight, but that looked pretty good. Um, if he wants to stay there, I think he can stay there. I don't know. I mean, listen... The 170 Usman and Colby era was what it was. Usman's one of the best welterweights to have ever lived. Um, probably second best in my judgment, um, but very, very good. Very legitimate. Phenomenal title reign. Um, sensational ability. But it's time for that division to get some turnover. I think turnover is healthy for a division. Colby losing to Leon, I think, is good. Not like, oh, let's stick it to Colby. Like, getting some of these older 35-ish senior figures, and I think he's like 36, pushed out for some newer ones, I think is the way to go. And of course, they're just going to move to middleweight in the case of Usman, but I don't think he's contending for a title just yet. It creates some fresh matchups. Just going back to 170 to me is not the answer. To me, it's Shavkat Colby. I said this after that fight with uh, Shavkat and um, who was his last fight against? Not Jeff Neal, but it was, uh, my memory just sucks ass, but you understand what I'm saying. That, that, to me, makes much more sense. Significantly more sense. That's, oh, Wonderboy. Um, that's a much better thing for me. 
personally. I mean, I guess if you fought Wonder Boy, who's not in title contention, that would be okay, I guess. But for Us- Usman, I think his time is better served up at 185 pounds. All right, look, is Sean Strickland the obvious call-out for either Costa or Whitaker after UFC 298? Ooh. Both fighters probably need two wins to get back into title contention, and Strickland will give them significant momentum. P.S. Any future Strickland-Costa antics would be hilarious. Uh, I gotta say, so Strickland versus Whitaker or... Dude, either one of those sound good, right? Either one of those sound good. Strickland, by the way, Strickland may not necessarily need two wins. I mean, I don't think that's the craziest thought in the world, but like if it's Costa and Strickland were to stop him, you know, I know there were some calls for a rematch with the DDP fight. Um, I don't think they were like completely meritless, but there wasn't a lot of momentum for it beyond um, a relatively minor-ish amount of people. You might be right with the two, but even then, I don't think it's a guarantee. But yes, either, either way, dude, Strickland versus Robert Whitaker would be, I don't think it'd be a high action affair, but it'd be a very technical one. And Strickland versus Costa has the capacity to be weird as well. I mean, his ability to put the emergency break on anyone's offense is real, super real. Um, so I'd be happy with either of those, to be honest with you. People need Strickland to be some kind of crazy guy pre-fight. You know, and I, and I do agree, so Costa kind of delivers that. Although he's been pretty quiet this time. Not been a lot of Costa antics. Now, we haven't gotten to the presser. We haven't gotten to the weigh-in. I guess we'll see how it goes. But to this point, he's been pretty pretty quiet. But in general, I actually am much more interested in seeing what would happen. You know, this is always going to be my answer for the most part. But I, Strickland Costa would be a lot of fun. A lot of fun as a fight itself. All right. Ah, there we go. Hold on. There. All right, rank the faves in the top seven fights at 298 based on how confident you are in them winning. Well-matched card because lots of close fights odd-wise. Odd-wise. Odds-wise, excuse me. All right. Uh, rank the favorites in the top seven fights. I'm not sure. I guess Volk would be the favorite over Taporia, right? So... I'm not sure how to answer this question. Um, I'll just say this. I'll give you my level of confidence. My level of confidence in Volk over Taporia, not to say that Volk couldn't win, but it would be, um, even if you think he can win, I would caution against having too much enthusiasm. Robert over Costa, unless Robert is fully banged up, he should win that one. I'm not going to say no problem, but he should definitely win that one. Gary over Neil is an interesting one. That's going to be a function of Gary's footwork, uh, uh, big time. He's gonna. He's there's just no way he's gonna want to exchange with him uh, in mid range at all, not or hardly at all anyway. He's gonna be want to want to be on his horse. This is gonna be a question of like what Neil can do to him. I was slow to come around to Ian. Forget anything else that's happened around the online harassment, bullying stuff for just a second. Just the, the fighter itself. I know a lot of people got a lot of jokes about Ian Gary, but just put him aside for just a second. The fighter itself, how good is he? I was slow to come around on him. There's a lot of, anytime somebody comes out of Europe, I'm a little bit like, I know that sounds very dismissive. I don't mean it. There's many, many, many good European fighters, better than many American fighters in a million scenarios. But like when someone's got a lot of hometown hype, I want to wait until that hometown hype is matched by non-hometown hype. That makes sense. 
And that could be true of any market. But a lot of times, guys coming out of like these places where they have fervent fan bases, they're going to hype a guy sometimes, I think, a little bit before they're ready. But then after the Magni fight, and he had some other ones too, but after the Magni fight, I was like, eh, he might be pretty good. Um, but Neil is a different test case. He uh, he has his limits, but he has dynamite power, as you all know. Good boxing, highly experienced, certainly battle-tested. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And uh, Gary is not. He is not battle-tested in that same kind of way. So for me, I want to see... I, I, I would say I have low to moderate confidence in Gary as a... Um, as a um, Fave, if he is one, I, I don't even know where they are. Marab over Cejudo. The only thing that trips me up on this is what I asked Dom Cruz about yesterday, which was the three-round thing. But even then, I think Marab gets it done. Dude, Cejudo's 37 at 135 pounds. It's just a bad place to be. It's a bad place to be. Uh, Hernandez over Kopilov. On the feet, Kopilov chews him up, but I think Hernandez is just going to put a pace on him. Hernandez averages nearly seven takedowns per 15 minutes, dot, 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 at 185 fucking pounds. Marab averages slightly less than that at 135, and we talk about his motor. Anthony Hernandez is beating him with an additional 50 pounds on him, at least by the time they're weighing in. God only knows afterwards. That's incredible. That's incredible. You have two guys on the main card who are averaging over six. And if you're asking what the average is, I've seen people, good ranked fighters, with less than one per 15 minutes. One or two. Dude, two is kind of high. Two per 15 minutes? That means you get one basically every other round. That's pretty good. These fuckers are nearly at seven. <laughs> They're good for two a round, guaranteed. You know what I mean? That's the average. That's their average. Their average. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. I'm pretty high on Hernandez. Hernandez appears. He, he For some reason, man, he's a little bit wallflower-ish to the fan base. I don't think the fan base has quite connected the dots on like, hey, this is a dude you should be looking at. Copy love too. Copy love too. Um, but uh, anyway, Lemosh over... Um, by the way, the lady who cut my hair recently was Brazilian or is Brazilian. And she explained to me that it's, it depends on where you are in Brazil, where it's either Lemos or Lemos. I guess it's the Rio de Janeiro accent where they say Lemos, but if you're in other parts of Brazil, it's just Lemos. So, fuck if I know what the right answer is. Um, Lemos, Lemos, the fave over Dern. Uh, pretty high, pretty high. I, I'm down on Dern big time. I, I just think that her, everything is headed in the wrong direction. She, you know, with her kind of ability... On the mat, there she's always got a Hail Mary possibility. You can really never discount that, but yeah. And then Delimo, a fave over Taffa. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's heavyweights. I mean, who knows? Or are they fighting at 205? It's, I'm sure it's heavyweight, whatever. Uh, a fighter to look out for in the future is Rinya Nakamura. Do you know of him? I mean, do people watch this channel? Uh, if so, what are some things you think about his fighting style and his potential? So we didn't do one this past Monday, but the previous Monday I did a Monday kind of live chat and I handed out awards coming off of that UFC Vegas 85 show. Now he didn't compete Nakamura on the Vegas 85 show, but he was part of the road to UFC show that aired after this. No, no, sorry. What am I saying? That's Ray Saruya. Sorry, differently. Well, hold on. Let me back up a step here. Correct me in real time as I... Hoisted by my own petard there for just a moment. No. So Rinya Nakamura, uh, if I understand this correctly, Rinya Nakamura is on the... Let me pull this up. So he has two wins in the UFC. I believe he was on the under... 
Hold on. I had my own notes on this. He was on the under Japan under 23 Japanese wrestling team. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, that's right. He has a world championship in 2017. He got in the world under 23 championships. He got the bronze at the world cup in 2018 in Iowa and then the national championships in in Japan, he got silver in 2019 and then bronze in both 2018 and 2015 at the World Cadet Championship, something something roughly equivalent to the Collegiate Championship. In uh, 2011, he got the bronze medal at 50 kilos, and then his last sort of competition was at 61 or 65 kilos, depending on where he was competing. The dude is a hammer. He's a hammer. Very good wrestling, uh, good power. Uh, his opponent from um, not... Uh, uh, Yes, I, I, the Saruya one, he did not. Let's put him to the side. Nakamura has the two fights, I believe, in UFC. That's right, the road to UFC one. Yes, against Toshiomi Kazama. This dude just walked into him and tried to walk him down, tried to put the wrestler on the back foot, and he got sparked at 31 second, 33 excuse me, seconds into that one. He was just coming at him. Nakamura just gave him the fucking business. And then he took on Fernie Garcia at the Holloway Korean Zombie card. Showed phenomenal wrestling. All kinds of different takedowns. Great pressure. Great, just great overall awareness. He does tend to have, I won't say he, he, he has useful striking. I would not call it good yet. He is clearly still wrestler first. He is still clearly wrestling based. But his athleticism seems to be A, A+. He makes it work for him very well. He is undefeated. How old is he? He currently sits at just 28 years of age. Yeah, top prospect. Top prospect if ever there was one, for sure. Uh, and he currently, obviously, is going to be sitting... Uh, let's see here. Where do they have him? Yeah, bantamweight. And I think Ray Saruya was flyweight. He was the flyweight road to UFC champion. Two different guys, obviously. But yes, Rinya Nakamura, uh, pretty amazing. I think I did... Oh, you know what? Here's why I got it confused. We did put out a little bit of a UFC 298 special. I mentioned Nakamura on that broadcast. Pardon me. Nearly, nearly hoisted by my own petard. All right. Ooh, now that's an interesting question. Is Volk versus Toporia the MMA version of Loma versus Teofimo? Huh. Boy, that's a hell of a question. Wow. Um, that's a great question. Man, I wish BC was here. I'll say this. Um, that's not a bad comparison. There are probably layers to that fight that I don't particularly understand that may make any comparison between that fight and Volktoporia null and void. But if you're asking, in the case of Loma and Teofimo, by the way, it's not Teofimo, it's Teofimo, but okay, neither here nor there. You had, in the, I mean, Volk kind of, sorry, what am I saying, Volk? Loma kind of shit the bed in that fight. Remember, he didn't try until later and then didn't get enough rounds and was like bitter he didn't get it and maybe he was injured, who knows. So putting that aside, but if you're asking like there was one guy who was kind of like the technical master of the division and then you had this really brash, confident upstart who took the fight to him and used not... By the way, Teofimo Lopez is skilled but doesn't have quite the same skills a guy like Lomachenko does. The bag of skills that he has there is tremendous, but... 
He does have, in the case of Lopez, dynamite athleticism, good power. Um, and again, just really got in Lomachenko's face, took the fight to him. And there were moments where, of course, Lomachenko pressed him, but just in that particular fight, took his foot off the gas too early and had to, had to rally late. We shall see what complexion the fight takes. But if you're asking if it was a technical master going up against somebody who was not as technical but had two things really going for him, fast twitch muscles, big power, and a, just a certain kind of gusto to really march on a guy that people didn't want to face. And remember, Rukundo just had, was like, fuck this, I don't even want to fight this guy anymore, and it's a multiple-time gold medal winner. Lopez was undeterred, went, went right into him. In that sense, there might be some real meaningful comparisons. There may be other ways in which that comparison falls apart that perhaps I do not know. I wish BC was here. Uh, um, you know what? I might ask him about it. Where's my phone? Let me ask him. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, he's texting me now. Let me text. Let me text old BC. All right, here we go. BC. Question. Is Loma Teo like Volk Ilya? Let's see. If he answers, I'll let you know what he says. How about that? All right. Look, if Volk wins the fight, it would be his sixth title defense, one less than Aldo. Does he have to surpass Aldo's title defenses in order to be the featherweight GOAT? Not necessarily. How many times he has to defend the title to be in the conversation of all-time greats with Anderson, Jones, GSP, and DJ? Is that even possible without getting a second belt? Yes. DJ doesn't have a second belt. I mean, I realize that DJ is fighting at 135, basically, which is um, their version of flyweight. So in that sense, he kind of is getting a secondary belt. By the way, I, I, I didn't see it, but I heard he was an aerial show and he mentioned like, Oh, he won world titles after 35, but that's not what we're measuring. What we're measuring is UFC titles, right? Which isn't a disrespect what he has done. Dude. Uh, you know, Demetrius Johnson has done super well for himself over at one beating very legitimate competition. Um, but what I would say is, his last fight in the UFC was against Henry Cejudo. That was the one that he lost. He was 31 years of age at that point. Like the, He has no wins in UFC for a title at any point, even approximating 35 years old. So that would not apply, which isn't to say there isn't some value in measuring what happens when you look outside of the UFC. And it's also not to say he didn't fight good competition. That's really not what I'm arguing. But the original stat was UFC title fights, 125, 170, and it started out as 2 and 28. Um People can expand it in whatever ways that they want. They can add women to the equation. You can do other organizations, uh, and that's fine. And maybe you will get results that confirm that this is very difficult or it drops off dramatically when you go to other organizations. I do not know. But if we're starting with UFC title fights, I think it, it remains important to keep it there. No, he did not. He did not win any title fights or he didn't have any, he didn't have any fights past the age of 31 in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But okay, putting that aside, uh, how many times did he have to defend the belt and to be in a conversation of all-time greats with Anderson, Jones, GSP, and DJ? I mean, you can probably already put him there, to be perfectly honest. I, it, not the head table, the, the top five where it's, let's see, let's see, it's Jones, it's it's uh, GSP, it's Silva, it's DJ, and it's, 
you know, you can pick whoever you want there. Maybe you throw Habib in there. Maybe you throw somebody else. I don't know. It would be in the back half of the top 10 that maybe you could put him in there. Certainly, he's one of the best featherweights of all time. I'll say this. If he goes in there and beats Taporia, a 27-year-old guy, and I'll say this too. Remember something, folks. We do have the two cases at 170 pounds of Tyron Woodley winning on the men's side. We now have two more cases on the women's side. I mean, I did a video about it this week. You have, you have Amanda Nunes beating uh, Aldana, and then you have Raquel Pennington beating Silva. 35 versus 32, 35 versus 35 in the case of Nunes and Aldana. It's happened to, to, uh, on those particular places as well. But for 155 and down, no one in the UFC has won a title fight over the age of 35. <laughs> Hadn't been done. Hadn't been done. If he does that, I got to tell you, and especially against this 27-year-old fucking hammer, uh, I mean, I think you're starting to get to a point where the conversation becomes inevitable that he would be I mean, Hall of Fame already, right? We're talking all-time great. We're talking all that stuff. Um, yeah, that would be pretty special. I would be pretty... I, I think if he... I'll say this, dude. If he goes in there and he beats Taporia, I mean, the Hall of Fame is kind of already locked up. But uh, at that point, you'd be talking about... Um, yes, you would deserve a seat at the... At the... Um, greatest of all time table, you know? In, in the conversation with what those guys have done. And I also think that like, you know, long title reigns, like what you're seeing you get from Volk now, I, I, I suspect this will become a little less common over time, in part because guys want to jump weight classes, but also in part because I think maintaining dominance over a division as the game improves is going to be more difficult to achieve. Yeah. Uh, it's a good question. Luke, is there a precedent across other combat sports of fighters in the lower weight classes struggling at 35 plus, or is it unique to MMA? It's no, uh, to my knowledge, it's not been measured, but hold on. If it is unique to MMA, do you think it's down to the evolution of the sport? Partly. And increasing skill levels? Partly. Or that MMA is more physically taxing in a combination of both? Partly that. Again, we don't have any data that I'm aware of in the boxing side of things. Um, you know, Bernard Hopkins was well in excess of 155 when he was doing what he was doing um, in his later years. Uh, that's not totally true. Well, you know what? Uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Well, it depends what you mean by well in excess. But, you know, he wasn't he wasn't at 145 pounds. But the point I'm trying to make is um, we just don't have enough data. We don't have enough data, but my belief is probably in, in MMA, dude, turnover is high, super high, super, super high. I think in part because these guys don't get tune-up fights. I think in part because the game speeds up very quickly. Aging is very unforgiving in the sport. Again, less so when you're heavyweight or light heavyweight, but certainly 155 and down. Aging is a very, very key factor it's not just that you get older it's that these guys grow into themselves a little bit later like saryukian how old is armin saryukian right how old is this fucking guy armon saryukian armin saryukian whoops what am i doing here hold on armin saryukian let me see there he is currently dude he's 27 and he just turned 27 i mean Right? Like, he's he hasn't even entered his fucking, like, I mean, I guess physical f prime he has. But in terms of, like, true fighting prime, he's really not even in that yet. Scary. 
scary. Like it's just hard. You not only have to get worse, the other guys get better. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's this, the, the way the relative advantages are so short in time. And again, this is the kind of thing I am a little bit worried about. Like, dude, there's two real possibilities. If Folk goes in there and wins, even if he ekes it out, I would consider that to be extremely impressive. Again, first guy to ever win a title fight 155 pounds and down over the age 35 in the UFC. Like first fucking guy ever, right? That's a big deal. So by hook or by crook, if he gets it, that's pretty incredible. But if he were to lose and get, let's say, viciously KO'd, but even then just kind of get beaten up in some kind of way, Toporia is able to show superiority. The thing that I'm worried about in a case like that, uh, I said it before, is that by the time the fans catch on to someone being pretty good, they've already done a lot of their best work. They still have a window to do some of their good work, and that's the best part of their career where they can both get the fan adulation, they can get the big fights, they can get the most amount of money. But that window to do that, where you have finally earned your way, you have finally proven to the fan base, you have finally broken through, you're now on big cards, you're taking on big name opponents, you're getting big time checks, relatively speaking. Once you get there, you don't have much time left, right? People think that once I got here, okay, I'm so good now, it's going to take the competition forever to catch up. That's only true if you stayed as good as you were at whatever you think his peak was. The Yair fight or the Korean zombie fight or, I don't know, Brian Ortega or the third Max fight. Whatever you think his peak was. You don't, I mean, obviously you know this, but it's worth sort of saying out loud. You don't stay there. You go down and then they come up. And so those advantages just get, they get turned off very, very quickly. Very quickly. And again, I go back to it with, with Shevchenko. She, she probably should have won the rematch against... Uh, Grasso, but I mean, just understand that she's an all-time great who is the best 125-er we've ever seen, and even she couldn't eke out a win with two tries against Grasso. What do you make, excuse me, what do you think about Henry Cejudo's statement about retiring if he loses to Marab? I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I think if you stick around this sport for just paychecks, um, if you're not really competing for a title, and I just don't think it's a great idea. Jim Miller, guys like that can make it work. You know, Ironmen like that can make it work. There can be cases where what I'm saying to you is not true, but in general, I think it's a really bad idea. And I like where his head is at, to be perfectly honest, on that level. Either I'm going to fight for the title, uh, and I'm going to get the big fights and the big checks, and this is all going to be worth it, or what am I doing with myself here? I don't think that's the right attitude for everyone, but he's 37 at 135 pounds. Um, the only thing that I would say is, you can't, I mean, you have to be very careful when you say something like, oh, Henry sat in his prime. He did do that. He sat at 32 to like 35 or 36, whatever, or maybe he was like 32, 35 or 33, 36. But he lost at least two, potentially three good years of his prime time to go in there and stick it to everybody and get the biggest checks. Now, in the end, I know what his stated reasons are for retiring, but who knows what they actually are? Who knows what he was feeling? If he needed a break from the fight game, if he really needed a break from an athletic life, then I don't think there's anything wrong with him sitting. If you have to do what you have to do to protect what's up here and to protect what's in here and just to be happy, then you should do that. But what we can say is that competitively, is sitting out the window that he sat in, um, was that a wise decision for his competitive fortunes? I think it was a very bad call. 
for his competitive fortunes. If we're talking about what you would need to maximize earning potential, he sat out some of his prime years um, to earn uh, a lot of money or the, the what, what money I think is available to be earned. Um, so I can't say that he was wrong for sitting out. It really, really goes into very personal reasons that are just you know inscrutable to people like you and me who aren't really close to him and know. But competitively, he gave away perhaps the very best years to earn. And um, only he knows if that's worth it. But we can say that that, that key window was lost for sure. Does Corey versus Dom make sense for next? Only because Dom didn't sound like he was looking to just be a gatekeeper and Corey needs to stay busy fight. And having a legend on his resume would be good for his profile. Plus, it's an interesting style matchup. I agree. Would love it to be added to UFC 300 personally. I don't think there's time enough for that. Um, although, they don't even have a fucking main event at this point. But what I was going to say is, I don't think Corey wants that. I mean, if Corey had... I spoke to Corey at length when he was at 50-50 in Falls Church, Virginia. And what he made clear to me both on and off camera was, you know, he's looking to get to the title. I don't know if he would turn down a fight with Dominic Cruz, but if there was no real path to the title with a victory there, my hunch is he might think twice about taking it. On the other hand, if there were no fights available, this was the only one, or this is the best of the available lot of people who would say yes. If he would have to like wait up, like, oh yes, that guy will say yes, but he won't be ready for another six months. I don't know if he'll say that. I mean, there's, there's, you know, you have to make these things very context dependent, but I can tell you very clearly his sights are set on the title. And if the fight's not going to get him there, unless there are no other good options that he has to go to, I don't think the Dominic Cruz one would be at the top of his list. That's going to be a personal, personal guess. Let's see if, let's say if BC responded. He did. Oh, you know what he wrote? True story. He wrote, Yes amazing comparison so whoever wrote that question great job hold on um can you give me an answer i can play for my audience yeah he loves it he wrote yes in all caps amazing comparison all right, I told him to see if he can give me an answer and I'll read it to you or, or play it for you. Let's see what he says. Someone's like, hey, are we going to get vintage Volk or is the last loss going to affect him mentally? Your guess is as good as mine. Enjoy a smoothie. Acai, my wife got it for me. Here we go. I recently rewatched When We Were Kings, and Muhammad Ali took charm and charisma to insane levels. Have you seen it? I have not. It's true. I mean, I've seen a lot of Ali highlights, both in and out of the ring, but okay. It's truly mesmerizing watching Ali in this movie. My question is, have standards for what we consider charismatic in sports stars fallen so low that many now consider people like Sean Strickland or Colby Covington charismatic? Even Stab and OJ uh, has a million times more charismatic charisma I think you meant right uh, to meant to write than guys like him all right so anytime you make any comments about Sean Strickland there are people who just love his political views and then find any criticism of him hard to like deal with but let's just be honest about this if we can Muhammad Ali it, it, first of all let's be clear about something can you be reviled 
by a, like a big portion of the population and still be charismatic. Of course. You'll recall Muhammad Ali refusing the draft to go fight in Vietnam did not win him many fans. Neither inside boxing nor out. He became a titan of the 20th century long after that episode was over. So it should be should be noted that being charismatic does not necessarily equate to being well-liked by the broader public, right? Um, and that being well-liked by the broader public is in no way required for um, fight game popularity. That being said, if you're talking about like the parts where uh, and just do just changing his name from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali and people would not call him by his name. I mean, all this shit was super contentious, right? I mean, that guy was dealing with like real cultural fault lines and he was on one side of many of these issues that put him at odds with big portions of the public. But putting that aside for just a second, dude, Muhammad Ali was uh, a showman and you know, he would he would do things in rhyme and he would put on a display on a stage to before things got a little bit wonky with some of these issues he ran into to cast a wide net to a skeptical public to convince people to watch him to make an impression to be this larger than life figure that is not what Sean Strickland does I think even if you like his political views what people like about Sean Strickland is that one he is sort of an accidental to these people, and if you dislike him, you won't feel this way. But if you like him, I think what people would say is he would not be the guy that was picked first to be the most popular guy in high school. He would not be the guy who was picked first to who got any advantages in life. And, you know, stardom is still very awkward for him, and he doesn't seem to fit naturally with it. I think a lot of people like that about him, which I would say is understandable. But the reality is what they also like about Sean Strickland is that he is unapologetic and loud and forceful and in your face with the things that he thinks and about how the world should be run and what views matter to him. It is this forceful, frankly, uncharismatic declaration. And that's what they like. What they like is that here's a guy who in their mind doesn't bend to these either political pressures or social pressures or whatever in their mind tells it like it is gets out there and does so without apology. But he's not on stage showing you footwork, giving you rhymes, trying to convince the public to find him charming. It's quite the opposite. He is not trying to do that. And by doing that, there are people he has, through that process, attracted. These are wildly different approaches. And you know, you're going to get different sized audiences for these kinds of things. Obviously, many other contexts and, and variables that are dependent there. Um, so you should not... Like when someone you don't like becomes popular, it would it it's very very easy to dismiss that. All right, it's very easy. Your natural instinct is going to be like ah, you know. But you should examine. Like there's there's a lot of people who who Colby's a little bit different. I feel like Colby kind of got Colby got like halfway to where I think Sean Strickland ended up. To be perfectly honest with you, first of all, Sean Strickland got a championship. That's a big difference maker, and. I think secondly, Dukester, uh, Dukester trying to get in. Mm -mm. Um, I think Colby, Colby got like halfway there. He just never, he just never seemed to like really be able to. Everything seems so staged and so artificial 
that there were a lot of people who might have liked his views or were in some way sympathetic to him, but didn't necessarily find him all that charming or you know interesting. Some do, of course, but it felt a little bit forced. Sean is unrestrained. And I think that makes people who like him, there's a light bulb that goes off with them. Now, if people who like him uh, disagree with my characterization, feel free to let me know what I am missing. Um, I certainly am no expert. Uh, I can only make an assessment from afar in terms of what these people like about him. But it does seem that that's a big part of it. And people think, oh, it's just because they like his worldview. I, that is a big part of it. That's a really big part of it. But it's the unrestrained nature of him. You know, and I don't know if they love everything like he's just starting fights with Machine Gun Kelly for no reason. Listen, I'm no Machine Gun Kelly fan. You know, I don't... <laughs> you know, and people were like, oh, he beat up Sneeko. This was a, such a terrible thing. And I'm like, was it? You know, was it? I'm not so sure that's true. Um, but he is, you know, for better or for worse, and there are people who respond to this, and it's going to sound like I'm being insulting with this, but I really mean it not necessarily this way. He's a little bit feral. Right, he's a little bit unrestrained and unapologetic, and I think that's really what gets people to his side. In addition to being like forwardly political with everything, um, yeah. But that's really not that's that uh, you know, guys who you might know in the fight game who oozed charisma. I think had um, you know there might be some overlap with something like that, but there's going to be some meaningful differences as well. Okay. Let me pull this one up. Um, why do you think so many high-profile figures in MMA lack basic knowledge of scoring criteria? Dom said on your live chat that he thinks a cut automatically wins a round. And what he, okay, so what he said was, if, unless I'm misremembering it, what he said was that it might have that effect, but that he, he understood judging as in its ideal form in the way that it's actually written. Right, that it should not affect those things. It should be well. What was the actual context? Did it matter? Blah blah blah. The answer he gave was that like, well, that's really not what's happening. What's actually happening in the real world is the guy gets cut, and then you know the judges do this. So there was a bit of a misunderstanding there. But his idealized sense of how it should work was correct. Okay, but neither here nor there. Let me go back to the question one more time. And you're right, and that is a former UFC champion and full-time commentator saying this. Another example is Rose saying she thought she won the Esparza rematch based on her defense. Yeah, the defense one was baffling. Um, okay, so the basic answer from my position is that I just don't think most of the fighters have looked into it. I think that most of them, including the high-level ones... Now, you know, this is... There are going to be exceptions here or there. And Dom, I think, has had conversations to the point where... In the conversation we have had with judges or sat in judging courses. And I don't know if he has skepticism about how true the things he is that are being told to him. I, I don't know. I didn't have all the time in the world to follow up on some of that stuff. But, you know, if you're saying, hey, my defense won me the fight. It's like, well, defense doesn't count for shit. So that definitely ain't true. Um, but... Um, my general view of things, having been around fighters for 20 years at this point, is that I, I just don't think most of them look into it very much. They spend most of their time focusing on uh, skill development, being in the gym, living that life. To the extent that there's promotion involved, they spend a lot of time doing that. And I think through that, they begin to get this intuitive sense that they feel like they know what matters. And of course, they probably grew up watching fights. They probably watch fights now. They've watched a lot of fights. 
Uh, and I think that what ends up happening is they get the sense that they don't need that kind of training, that judging training is for people who don't know and you have to be caught up and you have to learn. Um, and there can be some, something to that, by the way, there can, there, there, that's not entirely a crazy thing, but when you realize that judging, uh, at its highest form is actually a skill that is independent of one's ability to fight and that criteria is based on ways in which to most accurately measure what matters in a fight. Once you actually really like wrapped your head around that, I don't think that they're like averse to what's there. They just get, again, and I'm making a, uh, I'm making a, uh, this is, this is conjecture. My sense is that they feel like they already know, you know, uh, and I've heard them say it explicitly in those terms. They have said like, what, 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 you know, the judge needs to talk to me. They don't, I, I don't need to talk to them. Um, I've heard that told, uh, that's been told to me before. So. Luke, what's wrong with the UFC essentially being the golden standard for MMA? Uh, I don't know what that means. How is it any different? Oh, okay, here we go. How is it any different than any of the other dominant organizations such as the NFL, NBA, and NHL? Glad you asked. Very glad you asked. Very different. Um, first of all, anyone who plays in the NFL, the NBA, or the NHL is an employee of their team. They're not independent contractors. It's very funny to me. I do like Daniel Cormier, but when he calls John Jones a bad employee... And then you had, I think, Chael Sonnen, and I love Chael. I love Chael to death. But he was, you know, he was coming down on him saying, you know what, Daniel was right. He is a bad employee. Let's just stop right there. First of all, he's not an employee at all. Number one, not an employee. And if he was an employee, you'd actually have more control over him in terms of the legal sense, but you'd owe him a lot more as well, right? There would be a significant amount owed to him uh, in terms of various protections and, and, uh, and whatnot. So that, that's there. Because they are employees, they are also able to unionize. And, of course, the NFL has a union, the NFLPA. The NBA has a union. The NHL has a union. Major League Baseball has a union. This union is able to collectively bargaining. And then the, the leagues themselves are legally obligated, because these employees created this union, to bargain with them on behalf of all the athletes who are employees. So that's a huge difference as well. But what you're really kind of getting at is... Uh, the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL, now it can, and MLB as well, are slightly different depending on which one. For example, the NFL doesn't have this explicitly. Uh, but basically, all of these major organizations, in, in one term or another, they all have monopoly ex exemption. They have an exemption, in certain cases granted by Congress, um, to act as a monopoly. Now, the NFL doesn't have that explicitly, but it does have those in terms of negotiating for television rights. So for example, there can be like local team coverage of the preseason for the Washington Commanders. And I think I used to air on like NBC Sports Washington. I'm not sure where it's going to air this next season. Um, they can do that. But the NFL themselves, they're the ones that negotiate those rights. And they're able to do that because they have some monopoly protections in that way. If you're going to make the UFC a monopoly, well, then all the fighters would have to become employees. And then there would be almost certainly right afterwards, there'd be a union. Now, this is something that was pursued for some time. Project Spearhead was one of these efforts. That's hardly the only one. And the fighters didn't really go for it. Um, so what we have now is the worst of all possible worlds. They are not employees. There is no collective, collective bargaining agreement. And the UFC doesn't have this kind of monopolization exemption, which then means that the people who are competing, the independent contractors, have no real mechanism on their own by virtue of that to challenge its institutional power. And you might be saying, well, Luke, I mean, how do these guys in the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball get so much money if it's a union and, or sorry, if it's a, uh, 
it's a monopoly and monopolies are the problem, right? Well, here's the difference. Those are leagues and there are multiple teams and the multiple teams are able to bid on the services. Uh, there's some parity involved with the draft, but in free agency, they're able in many other mechanisms, they're able to bid on the services and that league uh, model is what actually raises pay. And by the way, let's just state this outright one more time. It is the, it is the NFL players association, the actual union who requires the numbers that come out for athlete pay to be disclosed to the public. Hmm. So all of these managers being like, well, no one wants our pay disclosed. No, no motherfucker. They do. You don't want their pay disclosed. You are the one that is acting as a rent seeker, not them, you. Uh, so that's the issue. <laughs> this is the issue. Everything about the NFL and the NBA and the NHL, yeah, they're monopolies, they're monopolies, but they're monopolies that have some of the stuff um, enacted through, through Congress, through actual laws passed, obviously the president has to sign them, but through laws passed through Congress, and then on the other side, because of these protections or because of these um, exemptions, there is a balance of power that is created by the player. I mean, dude, who runs the, N uh, the NBA? The NBA or the players? I mean, that's a player-dominant league if ever there was one because they have those requisite protections. And because it is a league model, that is how pay goes up, which is you don't have that in MMA. You could have a collective bargaining agreement that would protect, I think, some of their interests. That would be better than what we have now but it wouldn't actually meaningfully raise their pay. What raises their pay is free agency, multiple outlets bidding for somebody. You get that through the having multiple promoters who can do that. But because 90 cents of every dollar that goes into MMA is taken by the UFC, nobody else can actually meaningfully provide those things. I, I've been talking to labor economists for a project I'm working on. Um, and many don't know anything about this case, so I have to kind of show it to them and tell them to them and then kind of get back to them later. And everyone I've talked to, I've talked to three at this point, everyone I've talked to has told me this is an open shut case, that not only is the UFC monopoly, it's like absurdly monopolistic. <laughs> like, like not even close. Not, 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 not even remotely up for debate. Um, and the, 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 they call it a high concentration industry. The fact that it's so highly concentrated at a level of 90% or more at this point makes it unimpeachably a monopoly. Like you would this in, in any other industry, if you saw that, you'd be like, holy shit. Um, that's a monopoly. So yeah, there you go. Let's do a couple more of these and we'll get to some of the paid ones. Uh, what other fighters would you like to have on? Love the Dom Cruz interview. You tell me, you tell me, I'll be honest with you. A lot don't want to talk to me. A lot. No, no, that's not. That's not true. A, a non insignificant amount don't want to talk to me. I get. Uh, there's a few rejections I've had to get through, um, but uh, I think that's part of the game. Like you know, I want to out some of these fuckers, but um, I'll leave that alone. But yeah, uh, you tell me. You tell me. Have I ever heard of Ultimate Frisbee in Colombia? Can't say that I have. Women's side is surprisingly a powerhouse. I did not know. I will tell you this. The Colombian weightlifting team is might be the best one in the Western Hemisphere. That's going to sound crazy. Like, oh, better than the U.S.? Yes, better than the U.S. Better than Canada? Yes. Better than Mexico? Yes. Better than Brazil? By a million miles. 
the Colombian weightlifting team is like no fucking joke. Oh, how about this? Eblen versus DDP. Who would you favor? Let me show it to you. So that you think I'm not. Johnny Eblen versus DDP. Who would you favor? I know that I'm going to get shit for this, but the answer is Eblen. I, I think people have asked me who's the most underrated fighter out right now. DDP is very good. I've been wrong about DDP before. I might be wrong about him in the future. I don't even know if I'll ever end up fighting Johnny Eblen. I think Johnny Eblen is like comically underrated. Comically. He's one of the best fighters in the world. He might be the best middleweight on earth. Um, and he brings a kind of skill set, I think, to MMA that um, very few middleweights have. He's got ridiculous cardio. He has ridiculous grit. He has very good, consistent pressured wrestling. He has good ground and pound. He has good experience at this point. I think he's a problem. I don't know if he'll get a chance to prove it, but he's a fucking problem. All right. With that in mind, let's see what you got on the paid end. Should there be any? I'm doing like a Trump thing here. Should, should there be any? Uh, let's see what you got. All right? All right. Very good. Francisco. Welcome, Cisco. Appreciate you. Cody says, Luke, Izzy's 298 preview touched on the importance of the outer black lines in the octagon. Is the octagon designed this way intentionally? No. Or is the strategic aspect coincidental? It's super coincidental. There is. There used to be two. I've talked about this on... I used to do the Monday Morning Analyst and I talked about this and then now I just do it regularly for my breakdowns. There is those black lines. And once you get past that, that's I call it the warning track, which is where you see on the outfield of Major League Baseball stadiums that sort of last line of dirt before the... The, the wall that they can hit up hit over for a home run. Um, once you're in that space, that's when they can really begin to get cornered. Once you're back there, it, you know, it, saying that you're in trouble is a little strong because it would be very context dependent. But for many fighters, if you're backed up into that space, you're now in trouble because you have almost no space to back up to. You're not quite on the fence, but you're pretty close to it. A shot can just push you into it. You know, your options, your narrows, your, your, your movement is constrained. You have to be very, very good at avoiding cage cutting or otherwise have good fence takedown defense um, to not be overwhelmed in that position. Plus, people can't, you can't, like, it's not like Tyson Fury is six foot nine, right? So when he gets hit, he can lean. He can lean past the line of the ropes and then the punches just, woof. But you can't lean up against the fence. You get stuck there and that guys get punched out as a consequence. So it's a real dangerous place to be if you don't know what you're doing. And uh, I don't know what context he was mentioning for that, but he's generally quite right. Nick says, I'm traveling to Japan from NYC to run my first marathon. Damn. Okay. Uh, any tips on how to mentally tackle this while not feeling as physically qualified? Dude, fuck if I know anything. I hated running in the Marine Corps. I fucking hated it. I hated boots and utes runs. I hated PFT running. I've always hated running. Never been good at it. I, Dude, just have fun. I mean, what else could there possibly be? Just have fun. You're going to Japan, for fuck's sake, to run a marathon. I'm assuming that that's a fun thing for you. Just enjoy yourself. What is the whole point of doing any of that if you're not going to have fun? Just have fun. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you a thing. Joe writes, I say this as a conservative. I've grown really tired of MMA fandom, especially online. Why do you think MMA attracts such vitriolic, angry incels who feel the need to bully so much? Love the sport. This person says, hate 95% of the fans. It's a little strong. 
Um, well, it's a sport that is uh, extremely violent. That's going to attract a certain kind of person. I think part of the beauty of MMA is that it is unrestrained. Um, you've always had a bit of a, you know, an, um, I, I, I say it before, if you go to a bar and there's a sports game on, a team sports game, you'll look at the crowd and, dude, you, I mean, NFL, dude, hardcore NFL fans might be the biggest degenerates on earth. But then if you go there for a fight, it's a slightly different crowd. It's a slightly rougher crowd. It's a slightly more um, edgy crowd that's not necessarily as sports-centric as the other one. And I think when you're sports-centric, like if, you go to, if I go to a Caps game, it's a lot of families. I don't see a lot of families at fights. You see some of that, not, not a lot. So it naturally appeals to, I think, males. It naturally appeals to younger males. It naturally appeals to um, all kinds of people, yes, but it's going to naturally appeal to people who have got anger issues. Um, and we have, I think, as a community, not necessarily you or me in particular, but as a community, we've kind of rolled out the red carpet for them in the way in which, you know, all this stuff is totally unrestrained online. I think there's been a mix between, like, online troll culture and then on top of it, um, you know, just the natural kind of person that would be attracted to MMA and how it's all kind of merged. And then Dana White has made a pretty clear rightward turn. I think he's brought the company along with him. And I think that has brought, you know, another kind of, you know, fuck your feelings kind of crowd. Unless, of course, you say something about someone they like and then their feelings are just completely, you know, they're in tatters. But, okay, putting that to the side, you know, you should never be surprised, no matter who is in charge of the sport, whether at any point that there are going to be uh, rough around the edges people who like fight sports. That's going to be true everywhere you go. Um, the question is what you do about it if you're a stakeholder in the sport to challenge some of those things. Top three favorite ethnic cuisines. Ooh, boy, that is a good question. Mm. Man, let me think about that one. Top three. Okay, Spanish food. And when I say Spanish food, okay, so these people, and they do this in New York and New Jersey a lot, these people are like, oh, that person's, that person's Spanish. And I'm like, no, they're Dominican, right? Oh, this person's Spanish. No, no, they're Puerto Rican. They're not, they speak Spanish. They're not Spanish. I, 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 one of my biggest pet peeves is when someone describes someone else's Spanish who is clearly not from Spain. Okay. So actual Spanish from España cuisine. That would be one. Number two. Going to have to put Japanese on that list, folks. Going to have to put Japanese on that. I'm not the biggest sushi fan, but I do like it. But the depth of that cuisine in all number of different directions that you can go, the precision of it, the beauty of it. And, you know, I've said this before, one of the benefits of eating um, like Korean or Japanese or Chinese food is that this is food that was not in any way developed under the thumb of the Abrahamic religions that can put certain kinds of restrictions on it. They don't have any of that. Um, they can be good, whether it's sweet or it's savory, whether it's soup or it's noodles, whether it's fish or it's pork. Uh, there is nothing quite in my mind like Japanese food. Your mileage may vary. I'll put that one on there. And then last but not least, I think I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to go Mexican food. Um, you know, and that's not just for like the, dude, Mexican food is good at every level. Street tacos, good. 
mid-range kind of restaurant where you're getting, you know, someone's homemade mole, like unbelievable high-end restaurant. You're just going to have a gastronomic experience. that's going to blow you away. Now, someone might say the best food in Latin America is Peruvian food. I would not be, I would not argue too strongly against that. It's just that, um, you're talking about my personal favorites. I think that Mexican food, I mean, people just, I, 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 did you grow up? I grew up in the fucking nineties here as a teenager in America. And unless you took Spanish classes in high school, they don't, they don't teach you shit about Latin America. They teach you nothing. I had no understanding of the depth of Mexican culture until I was much later into adulthood. It's frankly embarrassing that I have to admit that, but it really is true. And once you actually see and understand the depth of it, it is mind blowing. What a beautiful culture that is, man. And listen, I'm sure Mexico's got a million problems. There's a million things wrong with it. Like there is in any place, but I have a lot of respect for uh, what they can do um, with food and art. Pretty, pretty, pretty special people. Just two weeks ago, I went to my first regional MMA event in, uh, okay, someplace in Florida. Do you have any fun stories from the regional MMA scene? Fun stories? A buddy of mine fought in a pool hall in 2005. We got knocked out there. That, and not like, it was a converted pool hall, so everything looked nicotine stained when we had the fights there. Um... I saw I saw a referee warming a guy, one of his teammates up in the back, and then he refereed his fight. I've seen some shit like that. I've seen all. I mean, I, I went to a fight that was in a gun range. <laughs> that's a, that's a real thing that I did. Uh, that was in Virginia too. That wasn't even that far away from here. I went to a fucking fight at a gun range. Um, yeah, yeah, I've seen some dumbass shit, but that's real MMA right there. People are like, oh, the UFC is real MMA. No. The UFC is real MMA in the same way that, like, I don't know, like, uh, like Volk versus Ilya Taporia is like, you know, the most Michelin starred restaurant in Paris or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's completely, utterly not representative of what the rest of MMA looks like. It's just nothing, nothing alike at all. Maybe for the better, but, you know, you get the idea. Who did you have customer service issues with? BBL related? No. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Or as Pacino said in Heat, because she's got a great ass. No, no, no. No, it was nothing to do with that. I had to cancel uh, I had to cancel a membership for my daughter. She was doing this thing that she no longer does. And uh, they're like, yeah, you got to go to this online portal to cancel. And I'm like, I've never been on there. Because like, yeah, you got to put this number in. Everyone's got one. I'm like, I don't have one. They're like, yeah, you got to put it in. I'm like, I don't, I don't. I don't have a number to put in there. Like, let me put you on hold. And they put you on hold for like 10 minutes. And they're like, sir, I talked to my manager and they said you have one. And I'm like, right. Put your fucking, I didn't say this, but put your fucking manager on the phone. I said it more nicely than that. And sure enough, they had never, it, they, this was a new thing that had happened after our membership had started. So they had to issue me one on the spot. And then I had to go and do it. And they had like, oh, well, sorry about that, sir. One of the rare cases we didn't have one of these before. And I'm like, right. Why don't you shut the fuck up the first time I tell you. Did you watch a Dana's Howie interview? And okay, was that a bit? Was it? A, was it a? It was a bit, right? The whole thing was a bit. Did you guys see this? He's on it for thirty seconds, and and then just was like, "I'm done doing podcasts." Didn't he just say to Pat McAfee that like all he does is podcasts anymore? And then a day or two later, he's like, "Yeah, I'm not doing this shit no more." I didn't. I didn't get that one at all. I didn't understand that one. It, this has to be some kind of like joke I'm not in on. The only thing I could think of was that you had um, 
you had Howie just kind of basically blowing him on air. You know, Howie's like, oh my God, I think he called him a philosopher. I was like, wow, boy, that word doesn't have any meaning anymore, huh? We're just, I mean, hey, there's Barbus, the philosopher. Hey, look at this door. It's philosophizing. I mean, if you're just, if you're calling fight promoters philosophers, you are, you are not using the word in the way it is intended. I can tell you that. Um, but short of that, I don't know. I don't know what it did. Was it like too much fawning praise and he just didn't want to sit through that anymore? I don't know. I don't know. There, there is a part of me that wonders like a, a, a it was a, either a bit or B if it wasn't a bit and he really did walk out. I will tell you this. He doesn't spar with the media hardly at all anymore. But what used to happen was he would give these post fight press conferences. He would do it, blah, blah, blah. It would end. And then he'd pull up a chair. He'd sit right there. The media would encircle him. And that's when the real interview started. And that's when you could kind of press him and go back and forth. And he just doesn't do that anymore. Um, that was where I remember, like, for example, like where he did the whole Vanderlei Silva and address thing when he was talking about Chris Cyborg in Baltimore. Or, you know, when he that, that was when. So this was when Ronda had the media blackout before she fought Nunez. And Dana did this scrum. And that was when he said to me, Nate Diaz is bigger than you. You guys might, may or may not remember that. But it was during these exchanges because they were much more open. He just doesn't do those anymore. I wonder, there's a part of me that wonders if he misses that, you know? There's a part of me if he, if, if I, if he misses sparring to an extent. I mean, he always liked to spar and then win. I don't think he likes to spar and lose. But spar, I do think he did like to spar. Um, I don't know where he's at on that stuff anymore. If Cejudo wins, Owen writes... He should roll the dice and call out Volk. Sure. Yeah. Is there anything else more intriguing for Volk at 145? Much love from Wales. I mean, if he beats Ilya, if Volk beats Ilya, I don't know. The problem is, like, you know, he got washed by, well, he got beaten and then washed by Makachev. So I don't know what that would do for him. But, uh, yeah, if I was Henry, I would go for, I mean, dude, whatever time he's got left at 37, you better use it right now. Right now. Do it. Sure. Absolutely. Love the idea. Uh, as a hobbyist, at what point would you say MMA training becomes more of a detriment to your physical and mental health than a benefit? So this is going to be a very context-dependent kind of question. Um, but I think what I would say is, I mean, it really, really depends on your goals. And it really depends on who you are. It's funny, right? So I hadn't seen the guys I had trained with um, in shit like five years something like that maybe maybe longer than that six years in certain cases and i went to a house party recently and i saw all of them there and many of them were very friendly uh all of them were injured <laughs> all of them one of them had his had his hamstring ripped another one's was knee was fucked up another one was like oh i can't train because i got some back issue i'm out of the gym right now like all of them all of them but all of them had reached black belt too you know so you have to really kind of ask yourself like where you want to be and what you want to do. Now that wasn't MMA, that's pure jujitsu. So that's a little bit less. Um, the thing I think I would caution against is, you know, why are you doing it? What for? Um, MMA is not the kind of thing that you should be training as a hobby. Now, let me be careful about that. Here's what I'm against. I'm against somebody at 35 incurring significant orthopedic injuries for a hobby 
that is otherwise of questionable value. I mean, if you've got a black belt in jujitsu, you're not going to win every street fight, but you're going to be in a lot better of a position than you would be for anything else. Certainly some boxing and some sparring is going to be beneficial for you. But when you go down a road long enough where you're getting your ACL torn, where you're 40 years old and you're getting your hip replaced, um, you, I just don't, dude, young people at 28, they're like, oh, I twisted my ankle. And I just kind of let it go, buddy. That ankle is going to come knocking on the door at 40 and be like, remember me, fuckhead? And you didn't do anything about it? Well, you're about to find out you made a terrible mistake. That happened to every one of my injuries that I ignored in my 20s and 30s. Every one of them that I thought was gone, no big deal, hadn't thought of it before. They all come back. They all come back around. God only knows what's going to happen at 60. God only fucking knows. I didn't make it that far. Right? And so there's just this real lack of perspective about what kind of quality of life you're going to have when you're at an age where you might have kids and you want to have energy and you do want to move around. It does not make sense to me for somebody who works nine to five in an office, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. You know, it has a good career and you're tearing your ACLs on Thursdays because someone else just went too hard at a practice deep into your 10th year of training that didn't necessarily need to happen. If these things bring you joy, if you feel like it is not impacting your quality of life, if you're not so much concerned about what it's going to be like for yourself after 40, then there's probably nothing wrong with it, right? But if you're beginning to have some issues where you're making trade-offs about other parts of your life that you haven't even entered into yet, and this has no real financial reward, I, I don't really understand. I mean, Craig Jones even said it before, like, unless you're going to do jujitsu at the very highest level, it's bad for your knees, it's bad for your back, it's bad for your hip, it's bad for your neck. People people all talk about, oh, I, I trained jujitsu for 20 years, and I feel, you know, 15 times younger, it's like you're just completely full of shit. I've seen what people look like after training jiu-jitsu for 15 years. They look fucked up. If they trained hard at all, they look fucked up. Every one of them. Every one of them. They've all got something banged up. There's like one guy I know who's uh, my, my, my boy Raphael. He actually got his black belt last year. He, uh, he's, he might be the exception to that rule. He's an Iron Man, but like everybody else is banged up everybody else in the worst ways possible i'd be curious to see how they feel at 45 about some of the decisions that they made at 25 you know ben says i don't know here's five bucks thanks ben all right he asks uh, uh lazy bed caught you on the halcyon pod last week good stuff i'm wondering if you've had a favorite interview where you were the subject and not the interviewer i generally don't like doing interviews um about me i don't think i'm that interesting or i just don't like talking about it that much i'll say that one was one of the ones i enjoyed the most in a long time i mean probably the rogan one either, either we didn't really get into me at all i guess so that wouldn't really uh, make a difference um you know what i did one with shab this is true i did one with shab before i signed with showtime i ended up doing a shitload of views i was like really happy about it um he interviewed me in front of compass coffee what road was that was that ninth street it was nearly ninth in rhode island northwest and um, I got to talk about my life in that one a little bit. That was a cool thing. So well, probably that is what I would say. Paulie asks, when you and BC fly with Delta, are you in the same section or are you very particular about how you travel? Buddy, as long as we're flying, I don't think we're asking too many questions. With Valentine's Day being on hump day and Ash Wednesday, how many heathens do you think sinned by putting meat in their mouth? Probably a gazillion, probably a lot. I saw those donks coming out of the church. There's a church right by my house. I saw them coming out. God bless them. I'm not, I, whatever gets you through your day. I get it. 
But uh, how many of them were uh, doing the boot scooting boogie on the uh, on the dance floor later on that night? I don't know. I don't know. Altitude Exotics writes, Watching your content over the past five years has both taught me so much about being a better person. Well, geez, that's, all, that's a nice thing to say. As well as uh, been humbling watching you grow as a man. Thanks for all you do. Yeah, I'm trying, fellas. I'm, I'm trying, ladies and gents. I am trying. I'm failing most of the time, but uh, I'm at least aware of it. I don't really... No, let me be very clear about this. I in no way, in no way, shape, or form hold any enlightenment whatsoever. But what I can say is I'm in a much better place than I once was before. You know, and I see all these like online influencers trying to convince young men that women are the source of their problems. And I'm like, guys, guys, I've got good news and bad news for you. Right? Here's the, uh, here's the bad news. I actually tried what you're trying 20 plus years ago. I thought, I mean, I, I wasn't like, you know, outwardly like women are the worst, but like internally I held a lot of insanely negative views about women, most of which, if you had asked me at the time, I would have been in denial about. That's why when people are like, I don't hold any views like that. I'm like, you sure about that? Um, and I searched, I searched that path. I went down that path. Let me see how many places I can find in my life where things have gone wrong, where my status has been affected, my ability to earn has been affected, my ability to be happy has been affected, my ability to be me has been affected. Let me actually really go down these paths and see if a woman is at the end of it that I can blame. And I went down every one of them. And what I found at the end of that road every time was that there was no one there to blame, male or female, but definitely not female. It's a path to nothingness. It's a path to nothingness. You are wasting your fucking time. That's the bad news. The good news is you don't have to do that anymore. You don't. You don't. You don't have to. You don't have to. And I could pick any different issue if I wanted. You don't have to blame women anymore. Um, I can save you the years of investigation that that took or that will take you if you're at all willing to, to actually seek it out and look. There is nothing there. It's, it's not real. None of it is real. You have very confused people telling you very confused messages. And uh, if the answer is women are your problems, um, the problem is you. Trust, motherfucking trust me. Also, your jokes... Oh, same guy. Thank you. Very generous of you. Also, your jokes with BC about losers who breed snakes in their basement are so spot on. <laughs> I say that as a professional gecko breeder with 3,500 geckos in my basement. Yo, this guy, buddy, if you've got, let me just say this. You seem like a very nice guy and I appreciate your donation. If you've got 3,500 geckos in your basement, you probably also have 3,500 corpses. I'm just going to say that, you know, as a guess, I don't know that for a fact. That's a hunch, but that's probably true, right? Uh, this person writes, Christopher says, my mate Miles and I are going to UFC 298. Have fun, dude. Any shouts for how to make the show extra special for his first UFC event in real life? Viva los liberal stallions. I don't know what the fuck that means. Um, well, I mean, it's, the die is sort of cast, right? Like you have the tickets. You're just going to be what it's going to be. I always tell people it's the fight week activations you should go to. Fighters are around town. You should go to the press conference. You should go to the weigh-ins. You should go early to the fights. 
That's about it. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot extra you can do. But, you know, if they have signings, go to the signings. If they have, you know, again, anything extra that the fight week brings you, go get it. Go get it. What's the cringiest UFC moment that doesn't involve Henry Cejudo? Do you guys remember a Jacob Volkman? Do you remember him? He was sort of the canary in the coal mine that everything was going to make a right word turn. But um, he made some dumbass fucking... Let me pull this up. He made... The Secret Service came to go check on your on him. Hold on. Jacob Volkman. He made an Obama or like Biden joke. This is like 2016. Okay, yeah, here we go. This is 2012. So this is 12... God, 12 fucking years ago. Let me pull this up here so you guys can see it. Uh, oh, here we go. Here, here, here. Check this out. I'll just pull this up. Uh, like this. Look, Jacob Volkman in trouble again for UFC 141 post-fight Barack Obama joke. And here's what he wrote. In an interview with Joe Rogan after defeating Efrain Escudero, Volkman in a failed attempt at humor. <laughs> Who fucking wrote this? He said that President Obama was in need of a glassectomy. When asked to clarify his statement, he replied, a glassectomy is when you cut your belly button out and put a piece of glass in there so when you have your head up your butt, you can see where you're going. And this person writes, the joke fell on deaf ears with the audience, but apparently Volkman's full-time employer, the White Bear School District in Minnesota, heard loud and clear and quickly put the rising lightweight on administrative leave. Yeah, that's bright. Who wrote this? Adam, that's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, that was a cringy one. That was a cringy one. Look, between May 1 and June 1, boxing has three undisputed fights. Canelo, TBD. Well, yeah, exactly, TBD. Fury, Usyk, and better and then Bivol. Has the UFC ever had a month stretch that rivals that in terms of significant fights? Um, I mean, dude, like UFC 100 had a lot of those. You know, you had the heavyweight title fight. You had the welterweight title fight. And then 101, correct me if I'm wrong, was BJ Kenny Florian, and then Anderson Silva was on that card as well. Yeah, I mean, they've probably done that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. That's a great stretch, but um, UFC's had some good ones. I channeled my inner BC and made a terrible choice while in DC last week for work. I got my hair cut at Great Clips, and I look pretty fucked up now. Tried to tell you. Tried to tell you. All right, let's see if he replied to the to the question. Let's see what we got. Oh, Jesus. Just record an audio message. Here we go. Uh, stats. I asked you what the most likely main event finish was going to be. So it's Volk decision, Volk stoppage, Ilya decision, Ilya stoppage. 40% have Volk by decision. 27% have Volk via stoppage, 27%, oh, that's interesting, and 3% Taporia via decision. I would agree that Taporia via decision is the least likely. I would say Taporia via stoppage should be a little bit higher than Volk via stoppage, but your mileage may vary. What about the brown rice from Chipotle that makes it bad? Um, mostly that it tastes like shit. You know, and I, I realize that there are some um, questions about the value of white rice. I think that some of the concerns about its limited nutritional value are very overstated, number one. And number two, um, 
they don't cook it enough and it has like a little bit of a chewier consistency that I think is pretty fucking awful. UNBC should go live for the main event this weekend. He has to work it in a different way for CBS, so we can't. But um, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Did you have a favorite Super Bowl commercial this year? Yeah, none of them. They were all dog shit. Dude, what has happened to the Super Bowl? Like, first of all, BC was like, the game was great. I'm like, the last quarter was good, and overtime was great. The first three quarters sucked ass. Super Bowl show, a halftime show was fine. I didn't think it was like amazing, but it was good. It was fine. Um, I don't remember any of the commercials. There was the Paramount one where they chucked the kid. That was like mildly humorous. I was like, all right, you know, good job, in-house team. All right, whatever. Um, and then, you know, there's always a bunch of like, hey, drink this Mountain Dew, eat these fucking Doritos. All of them were shit. I don't remember any of them. There was nothing iconic that happened about any of them. Dude, they were all garbage. They're not even trying anymore. And by the way, what's this whole bit now where everything is like, hey, let's just make uh, commercials as absurd as possible, and then we'll just call that comedy. It's like, absurdity can be comedy, but there actually has to be a punchline involved. It's the same thing as being cringe. Being cringe can involve comedy, but it can also just be cringe. Um, one does not necessarily equal the other. Boy, they did a really fucking shit job this year. I didn't like any of them. None of them. Zero. Per Mike Perry, the UFC allegedly offered $200 million to purchase BKFC, but they declined. I simply don't believe that. Imagine a pay-per-view with a couple of bare-knuckle bouts mixed in. Instead, we get power slap. Yeah, guys, I don't believe that uh, for two seconds. Um, I'm not saying that Mike Perry is lying, but if that information came from Dave Feldman, we know for a fact that Dave Feldman, and I have a video on my own TikTok page, where he said explicitly uh, that we at BKFC talked to Nganu. They did not talk to Nganu in any way. I don't believe um, that BKFC is at all worth... 200 million anyway although that's not necessarily what you could i mean whatever the, the value is whatever you can get for the asking you know if people are willing to pay for it um i'm not saying that there is no way that it's worth 200 or or that even that they got offered that what i'm going to say is unless that is independently verified you should very much not believe that uh, how aware of your content on your personal channel are your bosses at mk very have they ever told you not to do something here because they want to run MK? Yeah, sure, all the time. The, 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 it, but not like in a contentious way. It's just that some stuff contractually it's obligated. Some stuff it's not. Sometimes they don't care. Sometimes they do. So it's a constant back and forth like, hey, this, not this, this, not this. It's just more recently because of the month off, they just they give us a lot more latitude for me to do it. But even then, there are some things that I still have to give them. So I just want to make sure that I'm in compliance. Um yeah, and that, that will change itself over time, but you get the idea. After watching your video on Connor the other day, is he the biggest what-if in MMA history? No. I know he had an incredible success, but four MMA fights uh, since 2016, and basically we missed out on his prime. Well, you missed out on part of his prime. I mean, you got him through 32, uh, 31. You got him through 29. You got him relatively active. After that, it's when things fall off. But you did get part of his prime for sure. And you got him, he broke ground in MMA and he became the richest guy and the biggest star the sport's ever seen. No, he's not a what if. There is a question about uh, the second half of his prime and what would have happened there. That part we did miss. That part you can say. But like overall, is Connor that? No, no chance. No chance. Much bigger what ifs than that one. It's no secret that combat sports promoters are generally gross and sleazy. Seems like it's part of the job. It is. It's just the way it goes. But which major promoters are the least and most greasy from your experience? The least greasy. Jesus. Um, I like Eddie Hearn. 
I like Eddie Hearn. I don't know him. I never met him. Um, and I get that he, I've interviewed him one time and I get that, you know, listen, they got to say crazy ass shit. Uh, but in general, I like him. I like Leonard Ellerby a lot. I like, dude, I love, love. I mean, he's not, uh, he, he does promotional work. It was not sort of fair to call him a promoter as such, but, um, I like Leonard Ellerby a lot. Um, you know, Don King is in a level all by himself. I mean, <laughs> right. If we're talking sleaziest, I mean, uh, it doesn't get much worse than him. Gary Shaw was a real piece of work too. Uh, Scala and that whole, that whole, that whole fucking scene was just something else. Everyone else is a little bit middle-ish. Think all title fights should get priority over others like Whaley over DeBronx Charles is a, is one of the biggest stars in the sport with all due respect. I do think title fights should get priority. Yes. I know DeBronx is a big star. If he's not fighting for a title, I don't think under the rarest of circumstances should that go over somebody who's as good as her in a title fight. Yeah. Sorry. Will you watch the one championship show tomorrow? Probably. Haggerty versus Lobo and uh, Lessie. I'm sure that's how you say it. Abasolo are great clashes of style. Do you see four ounce Muay Thai becoming popular? So I think four ounce Muay Thai has enormous potential. I just don't know if it has a potential with one. I'd actually be curious to see if what you, what Zufa does with it. If they sign anybody who tries it, if they try to put it on fight pass, if, if, if one's able to come to the United States maybe and make it work here, I don't know. But I actually feel like four ounce Muay Thai is the first thing I've ever seen that could actually challenge MMA exactly, but a somebody who can offer a striking alternative that MMA fans can really gravitate to. Glory used to be that. It's not anymore. Thank you for being fair on your analysis. I try. I get accused of being unfair all the time, but I try. Luke, you are looking thin, brother. Grats on the grind. Can't wait for the new MK Vision quest. Yeah. Dude, I went to the gym today. It was great, dude. Oh, my God. I went today. And, uh, I mean, I go almost every day. But I went today, and it was empty. I was like... Thank you, Jesus. I was able to drag the sled. There was no one in the way. I was able to to get. Uh, I have to do. I, I, I today called for goblet squats. I was able to find my weight. There was no one using it or putting their balls on top of the dumbbells because they're standing by the rack. It was wide open, right? I had to use uh, some machines for some laying uh, um, leg curls. It was it was wiped down. There was no there was nobody who needed a friend doing muscle ups. There was none of that. It was beautiful. Beautiful. What a day in the fucking gym it was today. What a day. Thoughts on that cop getting into a firefight with an acorn. Did you guys see this? This was somewhere, I think in Florida, if memory serves, where, in fairness to him, <laughs> in fairness to him, have you ever heard an acorn hit the top of a car? It is loud as shit. Okay, it's very loud. I've heard it, and you're like, damn. But this jabroni, oh my God. He does the tumble a couple of times, just empties his fucking uh, pistol and declares that he'd been hit. And you're just like, oh my God, dude. When when did, when did um, you know, my stepfather was a cop. I had a stepfather for, for five years. He was a cop in Washington, D.C. for 30 years. I don't recall him being so afraid of everything. In fact, I recall quite the opposite. 
Now, maybe I didn't know him well enough because I was a kid and I wasn't able to really inspect, but I don't ever recall him being jittery. I don't ever recall him being easy to shake. I remember him actually being the opposite of being like cool, you know, like hard to rattle, hard to get emotional. I only ever heard him yell one time, one time in like five years, you know. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, MMA on point posted a video reacting to your posts re age of decline. They looked at all UFC fights and found that age was 33 for title fights and 34 for non-title fights. Have you seen it? What are your thoughts? I have not seen that. Someone else told me about it. Someone else told me about it and I've not seen it. But what I would say is uh, they do great work. I love those guys over at MMA on point. And it's funny. Somebody else, I don't know who it was. I don't have it in front of me. Somebody else sent me some analysis that they looked at in terms of performance and they also found that the magic age of decline in title fights was not 35, it was 34. 34 is when you really began to see um, the drop-off. And they actually showed me the bar chart. I should, I wish I could um, find it. So that means you have two different entities coming to the same conclusion uh, independently. That usually tells you there's something to it, you know. But MMA on point is the best. And thank you for your donation. Anyway, getting back to the cop car, like what do I, you know, firefight with the cockroach he lost his job for that which i feel bad but dude let me just say if your temperament is so shitty and you're so afraid that a noise like that gets you to fucking paul blart yourself onto the ground and then empty your fucking you know luckily no one was hurt the guy they had arrested was sitting in the goddamn cop car if you know you you're not you shouldn't have a firearm for a job right if you're that jittery, this is not the job for you. We need somebody who's a little steadier. Where were you during the O.J. Simpson sentencing reading and trial? I was in 10th grade. 9th grade and 10th grade. Did people at the time believe he was guilty? Fuck yeah, they did. Why were so many people invested in the O.J. trial, dude? It's just, it's impossible to imagine anything being, as, you just, culture is so broken and everyone's got their own, you know, these little enclaves of popularity and we don't have unifying forces in culture the way that we used to. I was in 10th grade. I was walking to a different class. It was, it was between classes. The bell had rung. And so I was at Valdosta high school. This was in Valdosta, Georgia. And I'll never forget. Uh, I was this uh, girl I went to, uh, we weren't dating. She was like one of my classes. And I remember seeing her in the hallway and she goes, did you hear? And I said, hear what? And she goes, OJ, not guilty. And I was like, dude, we are, all thought, even with the prosecutorial issues that they had, you know, and again, I'm just a white kid living in Georgia. I don't know what LA politics are like or anything else like that. We all thought he was going to jail forever. Like all of us thought we were shocked, shocked. I was absolutely blown away. I could not believe it. Um, but then you get the bigger story and then you're like, uh, not, not that I don't think he's guilty. I mean, I think he's guilty as shit, but you sort of understand how, um, Cochran was able to get him off issues with police misconduct, issues with police racism, issues with distrust in the LAPD, all this kind of stuff. He didn't prove that OJ didn't do it. He proved, or rather, he was able to enforce that there was reasonable doubt. 355 versus 70 fights you'd like to see at 65. Ooh. Islam versus Leon, I, I would take that. Um, if you could get down to one uh, that far. Um, again, assuming he could get down, I would say 
Armin versus uh, Rachmanov. Kind of interesting. Uh, and then Colby versus like Dustin, I guess, something like that. Watching RoboCop last weekend, I'm concerned Dern has not addressed striking issues in wrestling to deal with. Lemosh, why do you think these have not been addressed in the way other high-level grapplers such as RoboCop have? Um, we, we, I get asked this all the time, and I don't know how to say this without insulting people she's, she's trained with or her. But whatever she's doing or whatever the people around her are doing, they have they have failed. Um, not not permanently. I'm not suggesting that there is no way to go back, but it is uh, a huge problem. It's a huge fucking problem. Um, her development has been handled poorly. I think some of that goes to her gym hopping. You know, my understanding is not having the kind of training schedule for MMA early on that she probably should have. But since then, I don't really know. Like, there's been no development in her jab. There's been no development in her wrestling. There's been just no development. Who do you attribute that to? Her? Her, her, her people? Um, combo of both? All right, let's see if BC got back to me. Nope, not yet. I mean, I don't know what the fuck he's waiting on, but there you go. Full camp BKFC bout, Mike Perry or Canelo? I'd still go with Canelo, but I tell you what, BKFC is a little bit just about being a fucking dog, and Mike Perry excels in that format. In terms of fighters you should interview, you need to narrow it down with a Google Doc of all the fighters and MMA personalities who don't hate you. <laughs> the problem is I don't know. The problem is I don't know. Some of them will tell me. Some will be like, hey, I don't fuck with you. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. Deal, fine, no problem. But then some won't and then you just have no idea luke plans to write to the u.s government officials to get them to sanction india not because of rising authoritarianism but making power slap popular it's unforgivable i agree again if you like power slap it's almost certainly because you have the fighting palate of a toddler you have just you have no you have no concern at all for like what's good no value of it i think we agree the ufc is a monopoly but how would that be resolved any number of ways you think regulators would break them up i don't know cancel contracts and make them all free agents no is there a fix they are so ingrained so it's two two possibilities is the basic answer there could be other fixes but the two basic ones would be uh keep it a monopoly just keep it a monopoly ingrain that in in law codify that and codify that in law but then of course make a union blah, 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 and then you could live out that scenario. I don't know if that's the best scenario, but that's one thing you could do, right? The other one you could do is the Ali Act extending to MMA, and I know a lot of folks don't want that, but you're asking how to resolve something like that, and that, that would be one mechanism. Also, I would just say that if not, it won't happen in this one in April, but the second antitrust trial, if they get injunctive relief at the second antitrust trial and then their contracts get changed, all UFC contracts get capped at two years, that would transform the industry as well. As someone who signed up to likely be shot at plus blown up for a living, what do you think about Dana White is calling all MMA media wimps and pussies? I don't really... <laughs> I get asked this all the... Not all the time. I get asked this a fair, fairly regularly, you know? And it's... I don't really, I, I, I never have, I don't, I don't know how to explain this exactly. How do I say this? 
I, I see people compare us to like the Russian military too at times. Like, look at the law and order that they have in that one. It's like, dude, we we'd wipe the fucking floor with those bums. Right. We wipe the floor with them. Most of the people um, who make this is you're you're making the opposite question. Like it's about media. Are they all wimps and pussies? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let's be honest about it. Some of them are. Well, pussies are right the right word, but are they wimps? Yeah, some of them are. I don't mean like physically. I mean like from a character standpoint. You know, like just never gonna bother holding power to account. Never gonna bother asking difficult questions, never going to bother trying to do the right thing by the people who need it most. Yeah, some of them might be, you know. Um, so there's something to be said for that. But, you know, if I was looking at promoters, you could make a very similar kind of claim as well. Um, but, like, sort of reverse engineering it where, you know, people who make claims about in the military, this is not what he's doing, but it's like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know these people at all. And I don't really know who's in the current stable, but I know who I was around. And, um, yeah, you're super wrong. <laughs> like, you can make a lot of different claims about these guys. Like, um, are they morally heinous or flexible? That's a, that's a, that's a claim you can make. Um, are they people who otherwise, but for this career, would have won Rhodes scholarships? Maybe not. That's a claim you can make. But when it comes to, like, their actual toughness... Um, and I, you know, uh, not them being tough doesn't make me tough. I understand that, but I'm, I'm just not going to, I'm just never going to be lectured by somebody who's not been through that or an equally difficult commensurate experience ever, ever. It, it is like the buzzing of fucking flies to me. I, 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 I almost don't have a take on it. Because it is so remote to my line of thinking. It is so far away from anything I consider even worth pondering that I don't. I'm like, I, I couldn't even possibly fathom a reaction to it in a way that would make a difference to any of you. Um, so, you know, on some level, I don't think that he's necessarily saying nonsense. On another level, it's like, you know, I mean... But you're not talking about, you know, you can think you're talking about me. You're not talking about me. You don't know me. Yeah. Uh, thank you, John. Or Joe, excuse me. Does this mean like Asians versus Latinas? I don't. What are we doing here, fellas? Like getting the horny police on me here? What, what are we doing? What's more important in terms of becoming a popular UFC fighter? Having an exciting fight style or repeating fart? <laughs> oh, that was funny. That was funny. I'm going to still say having an exciting fight style. However, however, repeating Breitbart headlines gets you pretty far these days, I will admit. I fed the Vanderlei in a dress line to Dana. Pr hashtag proud. You would. You would. Um, wasn't the nicest thing. Wasn't the nicest one. What's up, Kevlar? Uh, there you go. Super sticker. Thank you, bro. Here we go. 
How serious was GSP about wrestling in the Olympics? What were his chances? Close to zero. Close to zero. He had very good wrestling for MMA. He did not have very good wrestling for the Olympics. I know he trained with some of those guys, but that doesn't necessarily tell you a whole lot. He was a dynamic athlete, and maybe if he had tried that from day one, he could have done it. But there's a, I don't think people understand the biggest, how big that gap is between like good MMA wrestler and Olympic-level wrestler. It's a yawning gap. A yawning gap. Anytime they announce Riyadh season, I put on Houthi anti-Saudi <laughs> These are good jokes. These are good jokes. I'm enjoying this. These are funny. Rank the following countries in terms of how attractive... I mean, what are we doing here, you horn, horn dogs? All right. Colombia, Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, Spain. Dukes of Hazard, horny Dixie horn. There you go. All right. All right. Because you guys are horny... Now, this is not, I'm going to base this on, I've not been to all these countries. Uh, I've been to Colombia and I've been to Spain. I've not been to Venezuela, Argentina, or Brazil, but I've talked to many people who have. I'm going to say Colombia and Venezuela are probably neck and neck from what I understand. Um, I'd put Brazil after that, then Argentina, then Spain. I'd put Spain last among those. Yeah. The Spanish are very different than people from Latin America, not just in culture, but like, again, I've looked at my wife's, what is it, uh, ancestry or, yeah, that's right. I have 23 in me. She has ancestry and uh, she's 50% indigenous, 50%. So like, you know, you have just wildly different racial makeups, wildly different cultures. They just speak the same language and obviously they're colonial descendants, but there's big differences. Zuckerberg versus Musk in power slap. Uh, only if they both suffered irreparable damage would it be something I cared about. Do you not secretly love wooing? It's terrific. It's only terrific if you're a low-level primate and that's your mating call when it's when um, when it's like mating season. All right, that's it. I mean, short of being a colobus monkey, um, I don't really understand its value other than, yeah, again you're a low-level primate trying to attract another low-level primate um, for mating purposes. But beyond that, it just seems to me beyond idiotic and really the sign of a low-functioning um, mammalian brain. What are sled pushes good for in the gym? Any number of things, but I mostly don't do pushes. I mostly do pulls. So I've got the uh, freak athlete belt that clips onto the end of the prowler. Um, so the reason why I have sled poles programmed into all of my, all of my workouts start with sled poles, every single one of them. I have a, I have the M1 tank at home, uh, for any kind of workouts I do at home. I use the prowler at the gym. Um, for me, remember what I told you about ankle, knee, hip, shoulder. These are the issues I'm trying to repair. I'm trying to get stronger. Yes, but I'm trying to bulletproof and fix all of these issues that I've had. So the reason why they program for me the sled pull is one, it's a good warm up because you can calibrate. You know, you're not, you're not putting a lot of stress on your body. The faster you go, or the, you can calibrate how fast or slow you go. You can make it cardio. You can make it not. You can make it technical. You can make it not. But for me, it if I'm walking backwards, the knee goes over the toe, and then the ankle, all the little muscles in the ankle and in the foot and all the way up, get stabilized as you go to that knee over toe position to walk backwards. It's about strengthening my feet. It's about strengthening my ankles. It's about getting a warm up. It's about getting a little bit of a lower body, not pumps, not quite the right word, but get the blood flowing everywhere. 
Um, but it's mostly about ankle and knee and foot rehabilitation slash strengthening um, through a warm-up exercise. That's why I do it. That's what it's there for, right? But there could be plenty of other ones. Oh, here we go. Hold on. There we go. There could be plenty of other ones as well. That's just what it is for me. All right? All right. Hey, what a week it's been. Um, stay tuned for some stuff related to uh, 298 coverage on this channel. You'll get the post-fight show on the MK channel. I'll see you there after that. But we've got plenty of more stuff, plus the breakdowns that are going to be happening next week for the main event and everything else that will happen on this channel as well. If you haven't already, if you haven't already, going to be some goodies here along the way. Okay? YouTube.com slash Luke Thomas slash join is the best place you can go for that. Thank you to everyone who watched today. I greatly appreciate it. Enjoy the fights. Be safe. Have a good time. And until next time, stay frosty, y'all. Peace.